Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Good morning. Are we ready to rock and roll? Oh, we gave that up when we got saved. Um, Spiritually speaking, would you stand just for a minute? We've had a great service so far. I want you to stretch for just a minute. I want to try to do my best to be brief. That's all I can promise. I feel like I have something to deliver from the Lord. So let's lift our hands to the Lord and ask Him. If you want the Holy Spirit to encounter you with His Word this morning and not just hear something in your head, but actually be encountered by the living God that I want you to ask him right now. So, Father, we ask you that by your Holy Spirit, the teacher of the church, that you would reveal Jesus to us in deeper ways, that you would take your living word that you breathe out of your very being and breathe that word into us. I pray that many people would be marked in a deeper way and that the relationship with you, Lord, would be drawn closer and brought into a deeper place. Thank you for your great goodness to us. In Jesus' name, say amen. 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 So last time I spoke, I talked about the love of God, and um, I feel like the Lord wants me to continue on that. I didn't finish, um, which is normal, but... I feel like I'm supposed to continue on that. I want to start. I usually start with Scripture, but I want to read something out of uh, one of my journals just to start out to give you an idea because there's been a lot of times, even though if you know my story, when I was a teenager, the Lord radically and sovereignly broke into my life in and, and just a crazy way and, and drew me to himself, and he began to clean me up with all of my junk and crookedness that I had, and he really did love me back to life. I didn't have a church for a year and a half, didn't have a Bible for a year and a half, believe it or not. Um, But God, all by himself, just totally um, derailed and then reoriented my whole life with his love. And so that's very precious to me. And, And being a teacher of the word and a preacher, just through the years, I I began to notice there was a hesitance in me to teach and preach on the love of God. And I wondered, why is that? And and I just began to journal. Ever do this to to try to figure out why you feel the way you do? And just write it out. And so I wrote this, and I just want to share this as an an opening um, to what we're going to talk about today. Even though God's love sovereignly encountered and radically changed me as a teenager... There have been seasons of my walk with the Lord where I was hesitant to teach and preach on the love of God. I felt like God's love was often presented as sentimental and weak, stirring people's emotions seemingly with no real lasting effects. It appeared to me that too much focus on God's love often led to a false grace and spiritual carelessness that dishonored Jesus. Just being honest, this is my thoughts to the Lord. I was repulsed by a feel-good message without much kingdom power or lasting fruitfulness. But the biblical reality of God's love is not soft and emotionally squishy. It is profoundly powerful and radically transforming when it is really known and experienced by the Holy Spirit. And this is the last phrase that I wrote on there. It transforms everything it gets a hold of. That's our issue. We talk about a lot of things as believers, but we don't necessarily experience those things. We do lip service to them and we acknowledge them in our head. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I I get that. But there is a powerful, transforming effect that God intends for his love to have upon his people. And it's a growing thing. It's a gradual thing. It's not a one-time thing, right? This continues all the way till we see him face to face. A friend shared 
something that he felt like the Lord showed him this week. And it's resonated inside of my spirit all week, having to do with this message. How many have ever been to the mountains and gone to a waterfall? Have you ever stood really close to where the water is just pouring down and it's splashing and you feel the mist? That's kind of cool. But that's different than stepping under the water and it knocking you down to the ground and completely submerging you and soaking you, right? This is the way, I feel like that's a perfect picture of how we deal with the love of God. We, we like to get together and to feel the little mist of it, and it feels good and it's real, but we're hesitant to step underneath the deluge and let it knock us down and completely reorient our life and change the way we think and do things every day and transform our relationships and cause our heart to burn on fire. We talk about a lot of things. We sing about a lot of things. And this is not a throwdown. This is human nature. Here's, here's my heart in this. This is super precious to me because this is my life in God. He apprehended me. And if you knew how screwed up I was, and you might because you might have been worse than me. But without any community, which I don't recommend at all. Without a Bible, which I totally don't recommend at all. God kept me through my high school years, those last two years of high school. He kept me and I never wavered or went back. Because he loved me so thoroughly in my heart and soul. I remember time after time where he just washed over me. And I would weep for hours driving my car. Listening to a song and, and the love of God so penetrated my soul. He was taking all of the junk that was inside of me and washing it away. By his love and his presence. So for me, it's almost sinful to cheapen the power of God's love. That's not okay. It's a radically transforming power that God intends to continue, not just until we're saved or until we get to a certain level of stability. No, it's an everyday thing that's supposed to continue to wash over us and shape us and move us and transform us. It's powerful. It changes everything that it gets a hold of. The question that I have today is, does it have hold of you? Or is it a theological concept that you agree with in your head? Or does it grip you? People that are gripped by the love of God change the world. On whatever level, they change the world. They change their kids. Don't deceive yourself and think that your kids don't know what grips your life. They know exactly what grips you. And if the love of God grips your life, it will come out of you. And you will communicate that with tears to them. And it will mark them. They don't need theological treatises, right? They need an expression of what is real and deep and alive inside of you as a parent. That's what shapes kids. That's what makes them want to follow Jesus. Not because they heard you say it, but because they experienced his reality coming through your skin. That's what I want. What if we had a community of people where we were all gripped by the love of God? I read a book recently called The Insanity of God. I don't know if you've ever read it. By Nick Ripkin. He was a missionary in Africa. And he had a passion to travel all around the world and meet with persecuted believers. And to hear their story and to try to figure out, because he kind of had a big fail, not morally or anything like that, but he just got discouraged with the ministry that he was doing in Africa. And he traveled around. He went to China he met with 250 underground church leaders in China. And he was amazed because they all, almost all of them had been to prison for at least three years because in China, if you're an underground church leader, for your first offense, you go to jail for three years. You go to prison for three years. 
And they're like, if you haven't done that, you're really not initiated. And so literally, one of the church leaders there told him when a, a younger brother was talking to him, who was a church leader in a home, he said to him, hey, you might want to just take what he says with a grain of salt. He hasn't been to prison yet. And these guys were talking and laughing. And he, you know, there's an interpreter there and interpreting the story. So he gets it in delayed fashion. And they're telling the story and they're just joking and laughing with each other because they had all been in prison for at least three years. And can you imagine the prison cells for underground pastors in China are not really very pretty. Um, and they got regularly tortured on some level. But they were talking about and laughing together about how in, in, the, in the cell, in the middle of the cell, there is just an open sewage pipe on the ground. That's your toilet. That's everybody's toilet in the cell. And they were laughing with each other about how the guards would periodically try to threaten them and take them and stick their head down into that hole. And they're laughing about it. And he, when he got the interpretation, he goes... You're, you're laughing about that? They're like, yeah. Don't you know that Jesus is worthy? Like, this is a privilege. We're suffering for his name. This is a privilege to be able to call the name of Jesus. And do you know how many people we evangelized when we were in there? Like, it's like a plague and they can't stop it. Because the reality of the love of God in their hearts transformed the way they thought about everything instead of crying and feeling sorry for themselves every day. And I, I get, I'm not minimizing hardship, but they turned that all around and said, like the apostles, right, in Acts chapter 5, they were beaten and threatened by the Sanhedrin and sent away. Don't you ever teach or preach in that name anymore. And what did they do? They went away crying Oh, God, I don't know what we're going to do. I guess we're going to go back to fishing now, but no. They went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. There's something powerfully. We're, we're, we're not talking about theological theory here. We're talking about the reality and, and I'll put out this disclaimer, Allison and I had no conversations uh, at all about what she was going to share. This is what transforms a Satanist in the midst of his pursuit of evil when Jesus steps in and his love, like a waterfall, knocked him to the ground. Same thing happened to Paul the Apostle. He's thinking he's serving God, going to arrest the saints in Damascus. The waterfall came on the road. Boom! Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then later Paul says over and over again, time and time again in his letters, Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me, it was transformed. Forming. He showed me what great things I must suffer for his name. Paul put suffering in perspective by comparing it with the overwhelming love of God. And here's what's great. I love scripture because it gives us pictures of people that were just as jacked up as we are and shows how God delights to take them. Can you imagine Jesus picking the disciples? Like if you were Jesus picking disciples, would you ever in a thousand years pick a tax collector and zealots to be on the same team? Dude, that's like picking Joe Biden and Donald Trump to be your team leaders together. Stupid. They hate each other. The zealots probably wanted to kill him, you know, in, in the... In the, in the Jesus movie, you know, they're, they're always sharpening up their swords. The zealots, you know, they're always looking for somebody to attack, whatever. Like, tax collectors were so hated in Israel that in the Midrash, the writings of the Jewish 
Scholars, they said, it's actually not a sin to lie to tax collectors because they're only animals. And it's not a sin to lie to an animal. Literally said that. So they didn't have warm fuzzies. Jesus said, when he said and prayed, I want you to become one even as the Father and the Son are one, he was talking about a huge miracle. Huge. You guys are going to love each other sacrificially. You zealots who want to stab him in the back. And you tax collectors who are traitors to your nation. You're going to be the closest of brothers loving each other. It's a miracle. And it speaks of the glory of God and the transformation that happens in hearts when the love of Jesus grips somebody. John, so good. He is called the apostle of love, right? Have you thought recently about how jacked up he was? So Jesus... You know, he's the one after he wrote the gospel 50 plus years after Jesus was raised from the dead, probably, his gospel and his letters. But he talks about the love of God more than any other author in the New Testament. In his gospel, he refers to himself four times, right, as the what? The disciple that Jesus loved. That became the thing that shaped his whole life and marked him. But look how he started out, Mark chapter 9 and 10. I want to give you three really unflattering pictures of John in the Gospels and show how the love of Jesus transformed this guy. Mark 9, 34 and 35, we'll read. I'll go through these fairly quickly. Just want you to get the snapshot. So the disciples are discussing on the way to Capernaum who's the greatest among them. Jesus knows this. Um, What were you discussing on the way, Jesus says? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed which one, uh, with one another, which of them was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Okay, you would think, you got the message, don't, don't go there because that's not the way I do things. Flip over to chapter 10, and here's John again, verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. What was Jesus' nickname for James and John? Sons of Thunder. Do you think there was a reason why he called them that? I had lots of nicknames for my kids. Um, some of them were significant and, uh, and others were just affectionate. But Jesus, if he named them Son of, Thun- Son of Thunder, then they must have had a pretty quick trigger, you think? <clears throat> they approached Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's bold. Look, go ahead and just say yes before we even ask you what it is. We, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So Jesus didn't go for that. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in glory. Uh, What was the conversation they just had a few verses ago? And in Matthew chapter 20, the funny thing is, they actually got their mother to go up and to ask Jesus, because they thought that he would be able to manipulate, like who's going to say something to him, whether she was a widow or not, who's going to say something to this widow where her boy, she's asking you for a favor, like for sure, that's just going to spread extra butter and honey on the thing. Can you say manipulator? Can you say seeking position? Can you say arrogant? Wow. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, sure. Really? You don't even know what the heck you're talking about. Oh, yeah, of course. We're qualified. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. You don't know what it tastes like right now, but you're going to drink it. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. You ain't going to like the way it feels going down, but it's a lot better coming up. 
But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give. So what do I see in this? I see manipulation. I see selfish ambition. I see arrogance. I see that they crave position and recognition. Is, is this a loving man, the apostle of love? Luke chapter 9. We'll look at the other two snapshots there in Luke 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. And an argument started among them as to which might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child, stood him beside them, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least of all among you, this is the one who is great. John answered, the loving one. Master, not even on topic. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Insecure, jealous, territorial, controlling. No, don't do that. If you're not one of us, no, you don't belong. You can't do that. You can't cast out. And Jesus is like, wait, 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 wait. What are you, what are you thinking? No. Don't hinder him. For he who's not against you is for you. Third picture starts in verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. So you have to understand the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. Samaritans were half-breeds, right? They were the people that had been left behind in the captivity when the northern kingdom fell and the Assyrians came in and they interbred with them and they became half-breeds. They were half-Jews and half-Assyrians. They set up their own temple. They set up their own scriptures in defiance of the Lord. And so the Jews despised them. They despised the Jews. Didn't get along really well. Verse 53 but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. You're a Jew. We don't want you here. Get out. We're not going to let you stay here. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them or what? And he turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Can you say anger issues, rejection issues, retaliation, and murder issues? This is the apostle of love, ladies and gentlemen. Because when the love of Jesus gripped his life, it began to change everything about what drove him and about what moved him. And then he was the one that God entrusted to write more in the New Testament about the love of God than any other author. That to me is phenomenal and super encouraging and I'm so glad that it's in there. The love of God is not so much a theological concept we're trying to understand and believe, but it's a living reality in us that we must connect with. This is what the issue is with the love of God. This is what I found from experience. You can preach on the love of God over and over again, but if there's not an experience of it, we read this in Ephesians 3 last time, Paul's praying that they would actually know what is unknowable, and the only way that you can do that is if God himself reveals it to you. So here's the deal. Like, people, understand, when you get encouraged to get in the Word and to spend time with the Lord. Like, it's not a brownie point thing where you're getting point. You're actually connecting with the living God who lives inside of you. That's the reason it's powerful. It's not because God's got a little belt and He's chalking up, oh, there they are again, there they are again, oh, there they are again, and then we live our life like we're having some kind of performance thing. And listen, we will never, never impress God with our performance ever. It's always weak, right? Come on, you guys. 
Who wants to hold up your performance as an example for the congregation of the time that you spend with the Lord? Anybody? Because you have it all together. I didn't think so. We, we're, the important thing that we need to do is to connect with the reality of what God has already done. That's what this whole message of being transformed by the love of God is all about. So we take time to wait upon the Lord in his word. You know why? Because his breath is in here. Have you been encountered by his word and you read something and you just go, what? So good. Or you start to cry because it goes down to the deepest parts of your heart. That's what we're after. The Lord wants his people to be completely transformed, but we have to be gripped by the love that he's poured out for us. God's love is a living reality in us. We can either ignore it, we can suppress it, or we can connect to it and surrender to it. Do you know, if I had to put my finger on one thing that is the biggest challenge and problem in the Western church, do you, do you know what that word would be? Distraction. Distraction. There's always something else out there. Come on, y'all. I'm not, I'm not harping on this. I'm not a legalist. I, I'm really not. Um, but, but we are so distracted by everything in our culture. We're bombarded by social media. We're bombarded by entertainment everywhere. Like, this is a real thing. Why do we need to do this? Because God gets upset if we watch a movie? No, because maybe we're squandering an inheritance that we have if we spend 25 hours a week doing stuff that has zero value or negative value from an eternal perspective. No amens on that. That was actually pretty good preaching. We will never regret connecting with the heart of God. See, I'm so, I'm so thankful. I know, you know, you guys have get bored and irritated with me is talking about how the Lord apprehended me. But to me, it's so powerful because it was outside of a church setting completely. And God just... Like the Satanist, I mean, it was really like that for me. I was totally pursuing my thing, which none of it was good. And the Lord just came and boom. And I was like, what just happened? He intercepted me. And my life began to change in deep and powerful ways. I learned from the Holy Spirit that he didn't like me smoking dope. For real. Nobody told me that. I thought, of course, that's what you do. I mean... Get the best weed, you smoke Colombian, that's what you do. And a friend invited me to a concert. This is old school. Some of you might know this group, but Boston. Remember the, the group Boston? More than a feeling. Um, I had a friend in high school. He said, hey, I got tickets for the Boston concert. You want to go to me? And I just got some really good lumbo. I said, Dude, that sounds amazing. And as soon as I left that conversation, the Holy Spirit went, sorry, Sonia. She, she doesn't like me hitting my chest because it's been. Uh, the Holy Spirit said inside of me, just resonated, I don't like that. I'm like, what? I don't like that. I'm like, okay, if you don't like that, then you don't like it. I guess I won't do that then. That, that literally was my journey in him cleaning me up from all this junk that was binding me. And there was loads of it. But it's so precious and it's so powerful. God cleaned me up. He embraced me. I remember times when I had sinned grievously. And God came and I thought he was going to like. And unexpectedly, he just came and lavished his love on me. I remember driving cross country, and he lavished his love on me so much when I had screwed up so bad, and I literally wept for like two or three hours, and I couldn't stop. And I got somewhere, and there was a, a friend of my parents were there, and she knew that I had become a Christian. And um, she said, what, what happened to you? 
I said, Jesus loved me. My eyes were so bloodshot. I've cried so hard before that I broke blood vessels under both my eyes and I had two black eyes. Cried so hard at the altar. Went to a cardiologist one time. That was a, G- a Jewish man because they said I had a heart murmur when I was in high school on my, my tennis team for the physical. So I had to go see a cardiologist to check it out before they'd let me on the tennis team. And I went in there, and this was the day after that. My, both of my eyes were black. And he's checking me out for my heart, and he's like, uh, you know, trying to be discreet about it, like uh, he's thinking my parents beat me or something. And um, like, what, what, what happened to your eyes? I said, I was crying. And he said, but I said, it was good crying. And he looked at me like that. He said, well, why were you crying? I said, Jesus. End of conversation. That's that's a true story. So the love of God is is transforming. Like it shapes. Here's the beauty of God, and here's the only way that the gospel can work. He doesn't give us a list of rules to follow. He gives us a living Holy Spirit to live inside of us, and he pours his love in us, right? Right? Can you guys quote Romans 5, 5 with me? Hope does not disappoint it. Why? Because God has poured out into our heart his love by the Holy Spirit that he gave to us. So the the phrase there, poured out, has the idea of extravagant, abundant fullness. In fact, a lot of translations translate that as flooded. This is a lot. He poured it inside. Listen, the love of God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is actually inside of you. And it's dispensed by the Holy Spirit inside of you. Here's the deal. There's a flood of it there. There is no shortage there. You don't have to beg God to show me that you love me or anything like that. You just have to connect with that heart and not suppress it and not push it to the side and not be distracted and not connect with the Lord in your heart. This is the deal with devotions. Devotions don't have power. God does. Your dedication sucks. No, that's that's a real thing, right? We would all say that. That's why whenever you preach on prayer or evangelism, everybody gets guilty. Because nobody prays enough. Nobody evangelizes enough. I don't know, Sister Marie, you might pray enough. Um, (laughs) Just saying, everybody feels that lack, right? And it's because we have made a performance basis of even the spiritual disciplines, which are good, but they're only good because of what we're connecting with. You get that? They're not good in themselves, But because if we will actually take the time to connect our heart with the Lord, then ask him to show me, reveal to me the love that you have for me. It's a total game changer. He'll clean up those things in you. He will take away those hard places of the self-will in your life that cause you to stumble over and over again. The love of God, when it grips you, it melts away your resistance. Because how are you going to resist this God? How are you debating in your mind? I've been amazed over and over again when people are telling me, the Lord showed me this, but I'm not going to do it. And I'm dumbfounded. I'm like, the Lord told you this, and you're not going to do it. You're not safe. (laughs) He melts away the areas of resistance in our heart. Here's the powerful thing. The love of God is not a concept that you're trying to convince yourself to believe. I've heard this over and over again. I just can't believe God loves me. You're not going to get it by studying a book, probably. I mean, the Holy Spirit might sweep in there and use that. I'm not saying he can't. But, But the way that we know is that we know something that passes knowledge, right? Ephesians 3. So the way that we do that is the Holy Spirit, by revelation, shows us and actually imparts it to us and pours it on us, and we don't just stand there playing in the mist, 
But then we doubt as soon as we walk away from the waterfall. Dude, when the waterfall comes down on your head and knocks you down on the rock, you don't ever doubt that there was water there. You go, whoa. That's a real thing. We need more of that. As the people of God, that's why Paul prayed this in Ephesians chapter 3, that we might know he's praying prayers that the Holy Spirit wants to do in the lives of his people. He wants to reveal the height and the length and the width and the breadth of the love of Christ. Those are terms that astronomers use to measure the universe. Gigantic. I got marked one time by a secular astronomer's article talking about how many stars there are. And, you know, it doesn't mean anything, right? If it's on a page and it's just rows of zeros after it. Like you're like, no, then we just kind of phase out. I think, oh, that's the federal deficit of the U.S. Um, that's right. But here, he, he said, look, here's how you really grasp it. If you count... If you counted just the stars that we know, okay, which is really limited by the, the telescopes that we have, if you just counted the stars that we know and you counted one every second, how many years would it take to count them all? He said the answer is 15 trillion years. To count every star, naming one a second, that's just the ones that we know. The love of Christ, the height, the depth, the width, the breadth. How many feel like you have really been gripped by the love of God in a way, or you still have some room to grow? This is a game changer. This changes relationships. This makes us able to love one another. Because it's the love of God that he planted inside of us that actually flows out. If you try to work up love for somebody that irritates you, good luck. How successful have you been doing that? You, you haven't been. This is a miracle. God designed it so that all of Christianity is a miracle. It can only happen as the Holy Spirit works it through us. And here's the genius of it. On the day of judgment, Jesus is going to get all the glory. Because everybody in the throne room is going to know. Oh, you did that. Everything good that happened in my life. You did that. And so what's going to happen? Don't put a crown on my head. Because I'm just, I'm just as jacked up as John. I'm just as twisted as a pretzel. The good things that happened inside of me, you did that by your spirit. So here, you deserve this crown. You take this crown. I don't want it on my head in your presence. It's humiliating. Crown him with many crowns. Come on. He's the one who works his will inside of us. So, 1 John verse, uh, chapter 3, the rest of these verses are mostly in 1 John. We'll go back to Romans 5 maybe. How's everybody doing? You guys need a bathroom break or are you going to hang in there? You, are you all right? Okay. The love of God is in us. That's a big issue. John says that over and over again. Let me just give you one more passage of scripture here to affirm that. And then we're going to go on to the, the four evidences of mature love. And we can take the test. 1 John three sixteen, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, and notice this, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So here's an assumption that the love of God is inside of every believer. And here's another assumption in this passage that you're going to encounter other believers that need your help materially or financially. Correct? Am I making that up or does that text say that? Okay. It says that. So that being the case, the love of God inside of us is supposed to Spring up to the surface and reach out and go, of course. What do you need? How can I help? How can I bless you? Give me your electric bill or let me help you. What do you need? 
Now, I'm not saying that we do it 100% of the time automatically, but here's the key phrase in that passage. Don't shut your heart of compassion against him because there's something inside of you as a believer that wants to come out and bless somebody else. This is how love abounds in the body. It's because it's not made by us. We're not nice people. How many know that? We're not nice people. Christianity is not a demonstration that you have a whole group gathered here and they're just nice people. That's idiocy. We're not nice. Jesus is amazing. And he takes the crooked, the broken, the foolish, the diseased, and the dead, and he raises them up to new life. That's the glory of the gospel. He enables us to love by the love that he's poured out, flooded into our hearts. It's in there. All right, 100% participation. Turn to somebody beside you and say, it's in there. Come on, 100%. It's in there. The love of God, if you have the Holy Spirit, has been poured out in your heart. Okay. You're in 1 John. We're going over to chapter 4. We're getting ready to approach the runway here. 1 John 4. I'm going to read 16 through 19. It says this, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Now, the margin of my Bible and the Greek text both say the love which God has in us. And that is the idea here. There's something inside of us. It's not just for us. It is for us. But his love is actually inside of us. I like the the voice translation of this verse. It says this, we have experienced, because this word knowledge talks means experiential knowledge. We have experienced and we have entrusted our lives to the love of God in us. That's so good. We've experienced and we have entrusted our lives to the love of God that is in us. That's safe. Super safe. So it's in us by love. Look, I'm sorry. Let's finish verse 16. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Notice all the ends there and the abiding in. So actually connecting with the love that God has poured out in our hearts helps us to live in oneness with him and in union with him and in communion with him. And out of that union comes all kinds of good things. That's where good fruit comes from, the connectivity that we have to the Lord. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us. So let's, there's, there's three verses in the book of 1 John that we're going to look at that kind of give a test of, of what mature love is. So here, here let's, let's take a little, just take a little break. Just follow me. I had a friend who used to do this. If he felt like he was losing people, he'd just stand there and do this, stop in the middle of his sermon. <laughs> right? Okay. So now you made me lose my train of thought. Um, by this love is perfected. So three times in the book of 1 John, he talks about love being perfected. So what do we think about in American Western culture when we hear the word perfect? You ace the test, right? You got 25 out of 25. You got a perfect score. You got nothing wrong. There's no flaw. The New Testament never, ever means that by the word perfect, ever. It doesn't mean that. That's not a concept that they held to. That's our concept. And so we think, oh, it has to be totally flawless. I'm never going to again say a cross word to my child when they pull on my leg for the 58th time. I'm never going to do that. No. It's not that. Being perfected in love means coming to maturity, right? And a lot of translations translate this word perfected as matured. How do we know that this doesn't mean perfectly flawless in every way. Because three times in the book of Hebrews, this same word is used of the Lord Jesus himself. What? I thought he was always perfect. He was and is. But it says that he was perfected by his sufferings three different times in Hebrews. Same word. So what is the idea behind that for the Lord Jesus? It means that we're brought to the full expression of the purposes of God for our life. So when that has to do with us, we're talking about maturity. We're not saying we never sin again or we never say a cross word. 
but we're saying that we've grown to maturity so that what do adults have that children don't have? Lots of things. Money for one. Um, But they have stability, right? They have patterns of their life that are stable and they're safe in that way. That's what families are built on. And I know that there's a lot of chaos out there when that's not the case, but that's what should be. Maturity has the idea of coming into the full expression of what God has desired for us. So maturity is probably a good work there. So what does mature love look like? John's going to tell us three ways here, and then we're going to look at one more. So I've got four, four ways that we can measure our love to see whether it's mature in God. Okay, let's start out with verse 17 that we're just about to go into here. By this, love is perfected with us. By what? By abiding in God, right? Go go back to the end of verse 16. God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So by this is love perfected. This is how love comes to maturity, is that we go back to abiding in the love that God has poured out in our heart. We're connecting with that in our relationship with him, and he begins to change us through that. And so there is, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Just big, big phrases there. Love is perfected or matured with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. So what is the essence of mature love that he's bringing out in this verse and in this passage? Deep confidence in our full acceptance in Christ. What do I mean by that? You're not performing for God to get his embrace and his acceptance. You accept that you can never earn that. You can fast until all the meat falls off of your bones. You can pray until you have no more spittle left in your mouth. You can give your body to be burned, right? 1 Corinthians 13. You can give all of your possessions. It still will not earn you merit before God. It won't. There is only one who is found worthy, right? Ever been to the throne room in the book of Revelation? There's only one that's found worthy. So, the, the point here is, if we know that our acceptance is rooted only in Jesus Christ, in his person who substituted for us, in his death who took the penalty that we deserved, he's the propitiation, right? Which means he's the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. We deserve the wrath. He got the wrath, and he gave us the grace in exchange. This is so marvelous. So we have confidence in the day of judgment. How is that? Well, brother, you don't know all the times that I've missed it. I, I, I get it. Just quiet down the chatter. What is the basis for your acceptance to go into the presence of God? Do you realize the wonder and the amazing thing that we actually are told that we have freedom and boldness to go into the presence of God? Whereas in the Old Testament, the priests had to be dressed to the nines, right? Including, he makes a point of saying, if your underwear ain't on, you're dead. He says that. You're dead. If you see the Ark of the Covenant, you're dead. If the cloud of smoke isn't covering it and you look at it, you're dead. If you go in there and it's not a perfect sacrifice that you're going to offer to a holy God, you're dead. That's why tradition, Jewish tradition said they tied a rope around the high priest's leg because if he went in there and he fell dead, who's going to go in after him? No, you drag him out under the curtain. God's holiness is fascinating and terrifying and amazing and beyond our comprehension. How do we come boldly to the throne of grace? Because the sacrifice of Jesus was so totally sufficient. It washed away all our guilty stains. It washed away all of our failings, all of our guilt, all of our lack of performance. You ever feel in the Christian life like you're spinning plates? You know that illustration that I do? I love that illustration. I'll do it again sometime. Where, you know, you're you're spinning plates, you get them on a stick like that. You ever see that happen? And you've got 25 of them going around the room like that. But what happens? The ones that you started at the beginning, they start to go like this. And everybody's like, oh, no, they're going to fall on the floor. So he has to run over there. And he keeps spinning them like that. And to a lot of people, that's the way they live their Christian life. Because they think it's all about spinning plates and doing more and doing more and doing more. And saying, God, look, look, this is. No, it doesn't get you merit. Jesus Christ is the only sufficient merit to stand in the presence of God, and he's fully sufficient. 
There is no other. So we enter the judgment with confidence. We have confidence before God, not arrogance, because we're not depending on ourselves. So this, this confidence of our full acceptance in Christ, this is a struggle bus for a lot of people. It really is. And it might be for you. But the way that you get confidence in the presence of God and when you think about preparing for your funeral, which you should think about every day, standing before Jesus, your only plea on that day is going to be, His blood was shed for me. That gives confidence, our acceptance, our embrace. We don't live performance-based we don't live self-willed anymore because, like I said before, God's love, when it grips us, it melts away our self-will and it helps us to see. Have you, have you ever had these aha moments where you just see how stupid you've been? Like, no, no, for real. Have, have you? Where you just go, what an idiot. I, I've had a lot of those in my life. All right, so that's, that's evidence number one is that you have confidence and you rest joyfully in your deep acceptance with God that only comes from Christ. Number two is verse 12. We're working our way backwards in 1 John here. Verse 12 of chapter 4. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is, say it, it's perfected in us. That means it's matured in us. So, so the second test of actually having a mature love of God and having it grip us is that our default is to sacrificially love one another. Like that, that's happening in a very beautiful way in this body. I, pr- I probably see it um, maybe more than, than some of you sitting out there, but it's very beautiful to see. There's a lot of this going on here, and it pleases the Lord because it's actually his own heart coming out through people to other people. That's the way we love one another. We don't love one another by trying to be good enough. We love one another by letting what's inside of us come out, and the heart of God for people goes, yes, I want to bless you. Yes, I want to help you. Yes, I want to take care of you. Won't harp on that. Let's go back to chapter 2. We're getting close here. Thank you for your patience. 1 John 2, verse 5 and 6. This is the third time in 1 John that he uses that phrase, love being perfected. So the first time he's talking about having a deep confidence in our full acceptance before God because of what Jesus did. And we walk that way. We don't live performance-based. We don't try to earn God's love and have brownie. There's no brownie points in the kingdom. There aren't any. The thing that Jesus rewards us for on that day is going to be the thing that he actually did through us. And we're going to know it totally then. 1 John 2 verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we're in him. And the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. One of the things that chafed me about the way that God's love, and I, I read it to you from my journal page, was, is preached is that it felt like it was, it was just false grace. Anything goes. It doesn't matter what you do. Like, God's just going to love you, love you, love you, and, and all of that, and it doesn't matter how you live and whatever. But that's not what real love does. Real love, when it's perfected in us, when it's mature in us, it makes us sensitive to pleasing the Lord in everything, to wanting to do what he says. And we don't ever say phrases like, I know the Lord wants me to, but I'm not going to. No, you don't say that. That's a heart that needs to be softened and rubbed with that oil again and get rid of those hard spots. No, the resistance to what the Lord wants us to do gets melted away. Why? Because we know that he's for us 100% and that the things that he tells us to do actually are going to end up serving our benefit as well as his own purposes. We know that because we trust him. If somebody loves you in your life, if your spouse asks you to do something, your first conclusion is, well, this probably isn't going to kill me or hurt me, right? I mean, do, do you think that they would ask you something that is going to be harmful for you or hurt you or kill you? No. They might ask you to do something that's hard. 
But they won't ask you to do something that's not actually good. The Father above all. So we have a lifestyle of joyful obedience. And then Romans chapter 5 is, is my last evidence of mature love. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. It's so powerful. You guys are familiar with this passage, but I just want to make, put an exclamation point on it. Therefore, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Notice this. And we exult, hold on to that word, in the hope of the glory of God. So we're exalting. What does exalting mean? Somebody tell me what exalt means. It means to celebrate. It means to wildly celebrate. So think about this. Okay, if you're a sports person, last play of the game, your team's down by one point in football. And your kicker comes out, and he has to kick a 63-yard field goal. He kicks it up, and it barely clears the crossbar. The referees say that, and your team wins the Super Bowl. Then the fans begin to exult. Right? They're already drunk. But, but, but they begin to exult. Yes! So when we think about what God has in store for us, in eternity, we exult. What else? Verse 4, verse 3. Not only this, we don't only exult in the hope of the glory of God, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing this, that tribulation brings about perseverance, Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And look, here's the lead in. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. What's the fourth test of mature love? We actually learn how to celebrate even when we're suffering, when it's really hard. Not because we love pain and we're sadists but because we know the heart of our God is so faithful and so good that he's actually taking our hard place and turning it into glory. Paul put it this way, the sufferings of this present life are not even worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that is going to be revealed where? In us. On that day, we're going to see the Lord's faithful love watching over us even in all of our suffering, our difficulties, and our hard times. We all have them. But God, in his great heart and in his great love, when we taste and experience and let that waterfall knock us down to the rock, we can actually exult. This is a super strong word. It doesn't say you can smile in your tribulation, right? Um, no, no. Exult means to celebrate wildly even in the midst. Not for them, but in the midst of because we have tasted and experienced the love of the Father that he has poured out upon our lives. This is a witness to the lost world. They do not understand that at all. And through history, But the martyrs, with those who have suffered and been persecuted for their faith, it has been a powerful testimony to unbelievers of the power of the living Christ inside of somebody. Where they could stand there, you know, the, the, the martyrdom of Polycarp always comes to mind. He's an 80-something-year-old church leader. They burned him at the stake because they got tired of him preaching. And they said, if you recant Jesus then we'll cut you loose, old man. <laughs> he smiled and laughed and said, deny Jesus? 
He's only done good for me all of these 84 years. Why would I be such a fool as to deny him? Now, bring the wood. You're fixing to send me to my heart's desire and glory. Bring the wood. And they were like, here's the ultimate testimony. This is what Paul said in Philippians 1. This is not just martyrs. This is Christians. He said, I don't know whether to choose, whether to stay with you or whether to go home and be with the Lord. I'm hard-pressed. And he finally says, it's probably better for me. He's thinking from God's purpose. It's probably better that I stay here so that I can help you in, in growth in your faith. But look, here's the thing. It's not an issue of whether I live or die. This is, Paul's, this is Paul's the way he lived his life. It's not an issue of whether I live or die. It's not an issue of whether I gain money or lose money. It's not an issue of whether it's hard for me or easy. The issue is that in everything, Jesus Christ be glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. That's the ruling thing now. Because his love has so won me. I just want to do what he wants me to do. This is the power of the love of God gripping us. My friends, I'm pleading with us. Take time to shut out some distractions and just sit before the Lord. Ask him to connect his heart of love to you in ways that you may not have experienced for decades, some of you. Like, you need for that water to knock you to the ground and to feel the power of the love of God to change everything about your life. When that happens, this whole world won't be the same, but you won't be the same either. And everything in your life that has held you down, held you back, made you question, made you fret, made you anxious, so many of those things get washed away. They get minimized and they get put in their proper perspective. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you. Words cannot do justice to the depth of your love. It's so phenomenal. It's so incredible and amazing and words all fall to the ground trying to express it. But would you, Lord, in your mighty grace, would you draw everyone here and those watching online, would you draw us to yourself by your Holy Spirit into a deeper experience to where we know, not just that we have a theological construct that we agree with, but that we know because that water has knocked me down to the ground over and over again. And I want to go there again. Would you help us to know and to not be content to feel the mist every now and then? Lord, we want to be overwhelmed. And you said in your word that that would be the doorway that would open us up as individuals and as a community to the fullness of God dwelling in our midst, and that's what we desire, because you are our treasure, you are our desire, and we want nothing more or other than your fullness in our lives and in our community. We need your help, Lord. We're asking for a miracle here, but I pray that you would give us strategy to where we would actually do something to respond to what your calling and your drawing is. Let's just remain quiet for just a minute. I want us just to let the Holy Spirit speak to us, give you some kind of strategy. I get your schedule's busy. I get you have kids. I get you have jobs. I get you have businesses. I get all of that. The Lord gets all of that. But there's a strategy that the Father has for each of us to actually connect more fully to the love that he has flooded into our hearts by his Spirit. So let's take a minute. If you need to write it down, write it down so you don't forget if the Lord shows you something, how to, how to better connect. Make choices to connect. Father, I ask that you would continue to speak to us. Lord, we pray.
the prayer from the Song of Solomon. Draw us. Draw us to you. We want to run with you. Would you draw us, Lord, and let that drawing supersede every other distraction in our lives. May you help us to feel the ache of the longing for better connection with you. Will you help us to feel even the sharp ache of hunger for you? Lord, nothing in this world can ever satisfy us. We have been ruined for anything other than you. Please draw us. Please continue to speak to us as your people and let your love continue to rise like a mighty wave in our midst and fill every part of this community and every part of our lives. Like Paul said, the love of Christ controls us. Let it be so, Father. I thank you for this people, Lord, for their heart for you and for all the plans that you have for us. Pour out your grace in great measure. Bless them. Let your face shine upon them, Father, even this week. Strengthen them and encourage them, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.